Hello, everyone. It's the Sun Also Rises podcast. I'm Jeremiah Jacques, and today we discuss a group of men who undertook a mission so dangerous and so difficult and prepared on such short time that only a fiction writer would have been optimistic about how it would turn out. But these men charged into it wholeheartedly because they refused to compromise with evil. Here uh, you had a mission that's far off in Africa, trying to rescue an amount of hostages that was unheard of in Israel before. Very little preparations. And these operations until then mostly failed because of the nature of such an operation. Today on The Sun Also Rises from KPCG-FM, we present Operation Jonathan. This story begins on June 27th of 1976. That morning, an Airbus A300 took off from Tel Aviv, Israel, on its way to Paris. It was Air France Flight 139. There were more than 200 people on board, including a crew of 12. And after a few hours, the plane made a scheduled stopover in Athens. In Athens, a few of the passengers got off the plane, and dozens of new people got on board. But four of these new passengers had no intention of flying to Paris that day. Just a few minutes after taking off in Athens, these four people, three men and one woman, jumped up out of their seats. They were brandishing guns and grenades. They began collecting all the passengers' passports and planting explosives along the aisles. Anyone who put up resistance was struck with a fist or even pistol whipped. The woman held a grenade in her hand, apparently with the pin pulled, as insurance to keep anyone from trying to attack her. One of the three men rushed to the cockpit and pointed his gun at the pilot's head. He told him to immediately reroute the plane. They were no longer going northwest to Paris, but south, toward Africa. With a gun at his head, the pilot had no choice but to comply. He began to turn the plane around. Air France Flight 139 was hijacked. One of the terrorists grabbed the cabin microphone. He announced that they had taken over the flight in the name of the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, the PFLP. The plane was hijacked by a group of Palestinian and German terrorists. They were working for one of the extreme Palestinian terrorist groups. That's Dr. Ido Netanyahu. He has studied this chapter of history in depth, interviewing dozens of the people who were involved in it. Dr. Netanyahu has written several books on the topic, and he spoke to The Sun Also Rises about it on August 9th from his home in Israel. 
Two of the four terrorists were Palestinian men, as Netanyahu said there. They were members of a breakaway faction of the PFLP. The two others were a German couple, Wilfried Bose and his female companion Bridget Coleman. They were members of a German leftist terrorist group that supported the PFLP. For air traffic controllers back in Israel, Flight 139 fell silent on the radio waves. Israeli intelligence forces immediately began to investigate. What happened? Had the plane crashed? Had it been hijacked? They thought that if the flight had been hijacked, the plane might soon be heading back toward Israel. A division of the Israeli Defense Forces, called the Sayeret Matkal, or the Unit, went on high alert. But the hijackers instead directed the plane south, toward Benghazi, Libya. Muammar Gaddafi was the dictator of Libya at the time, and he let the terrorists land there and refuel, but Gaddafi said he would not allow them to stay in his country. So after refueling, Flight 139 took off once again. The passengers had no idea where they were going because the terrorists made them keep their window shutters pulled down. After flying for about five hours, the plane finally landed and they were allowed to open the shutters. Out on the tarmac stood a notorious figure that many of them instantly recognized. Wearing heavily decorated camouflage fatigues was the six foot six, 250 pound frame of the famous African dictator Idi Amin. The passengers realized they were in Uganda, which Amin ruled at the time. I'll just take a moment here to talk a little bit about Amin because his reign was one of the bloodiest in the history of Africa. During his violent rule, Amin had as many as 300,000 of his countrymen killed. The title that Amin gave to himself grew longer and longer over the years. And ultimately, it became His Excellency, President for Life, Field Marshal El Haji, Dr. Idi Amin Dada, VC, DSO, MC, Lord of all the beasts of the earth and fishes of the seas, and conqueror of the British Empire in Africa in general, and Uganda in particular. Idi Amin also officially claimed to be the uncrowned king of Scotland, and he sometimes made headlines for praising Adolf Hitler. Once he even said Hitler was, quote, right to burn six million Jews. And now the hostages of Air France Flight 139 were in this man's territory and surrounded by his troops. There was complete collusion with the dictator of Uganda, with Idi Amin and his army. Besides having the backing of Idi Amin, the hijackers were also joined at this time by a group of other Palestinian terrorists who had been waiting for them in Uganda. So after sitting on the tarmac for several hours, the terrorists began herding the passengers off of the aircraft. The hostages were taken off the plane eventually, put in a uh, abandoned old terminal, 
The next day, the terrorists issued a statement of their demands. They wanted $5 million. That was the easy part. And they also wanted 53 pro-Palestinian terrorists to be released from prison. 40 of those were imprisoned in Israel. And the rest were in West Germany, Kenya, France, and Switzerland. This statement of demands came on the afternoon of June 29th. And the terrorists said that if the demands weren't met by 2 p.m. on July 1st, they would begin executing hostages. Back in Israel, the government of Prime Minister Yisak Rabin was in overdrive, considering its options. And the options didn't look good. The airport in Entebbe, Uganda, where the hostages were being held, was more than 2,200 miles away, far beyond the region where Israeli intelligence and assets were strongest. And then when that distance is placed alongside the number of hostages involved, it made any kind of rescue mission seem impossible. Here uh, you had a mission that's far off in Africa, trying to rescue an amount of hostages that was unheard of in Israel before. On top of everything else was the fact that any rescuers would have to illegally fly near or even through the airspace of enemy nations. And if they arrived safely and undetected, these rescuers would be up against, you know, not just radical terrorists, but also a national military under the command of a volatile dictator. And they had only two days until the deadline. The main obstacle facing the Israelis was a lack of information. Although Israel was looking into ways of maybe freeing the hostages, there was no real plan. No real, no real plan could be constructed because there was no information about what's happening in Ethiopia. Ido Netanyahu understands the importance of intelligence for a mission of this kind. He himself served in the unit a few years before the Entebbe hijacking, and he fought in the Yom Kippur War. So it's clear that the Israelis were in a tight spot. Giving in to the hijackers' demands would release dozens of murderous terrorists back onto the streets of the world. And they also knew that it would encourage more terrorism and more hijackings in the future. Yet it appeared that Prime Minister Rabin and the Israelis had no choice. Rabin felt, given the fact that the hostages were far away, hundreds, hundreds of miles away, in the middle of Africa. And he had uh, no plan that he could l approve of, and he felt he couldn't just sacrifice these hundred lives. But Israel's defense minister, Shimon Peres, and others saw things differently. They believed that Israel had no choice but to resist terrorism and to dare to attempt to rescue. So the challenge for them was to present a viable rescue plan that Rabin could approve in good conscience. And to do it before the arrival of the hijackers' deadline for executing hostages. In the brainstorming phases, they considered several different possible plans. Initially, there were some plans, some ideas before Thursday. One of them was parachuting into Lake Victoria and using rubber dinghies to get to the airport. Uh, the airport was right at the shore of this huge lake, Lake Victoria, in the heart of Africa. That's the source of the Nile. 
another plan to parachute forces uh, who will then make their way by foot to the airport, etc., etc. But the Israelis didn't have enough information about the facts on the ground in Entebbe to really feel confident about any of these plans. But then something surprising happened. What the terrorists did several days into the uh, hijacking, they let most of the uh, passengers of the hostages actually go to Paris. Those who were not Israelis or who were, who were not typically looking Orthodox Jews they were let go. They were released and they were flown to Paris. From the descriptions provided by these released hostages, the Israelis got some badly needed information. They found out exactly where in the airport the remaining 106 hostages were being held. They found out how many terrorists and soldiers were guarding those hostages. And they found out numerous other details. And around the time the terrorists released those non-Jewish hostages, they also agreed to extend the execution deadline. They moved it back to 2 p.m. on Sunday, July 4th. This information from the released hostages started filtering into Israel throughout the night of July 1st and 2nd. So they had a couple of days before the new deadline would arrive. As the prime minister, his cabinet, and the military chiefs were furiously trying to formulate some kind of viable rescue plan, there was one man who was actually getting ready to carry it out. Lieutenant Colonel Jonathan Netanyahu. Jonathan was 30 years old at the time, and the brother of Dr. Ido Netanyahu, and also the brother of Benjamin Netanyahu, the current Prime Minister of Israel. Jonathan was the commander of the unit at the time. He was the tip of the spear. Jonathan and his team continued assembling every fragment of information available, formulating several possible rescue strategies. He and the other Israeli leaders were intensely aware that any rescue would depend completely on taking the terrorists and the Ugandan soldiers by absolute surprise. Once the terrorists realized that there was an enemy force coming to rescue the hostages, that's when they start killing the hostages. Of course, they can be killed within seconds with a few gun bursts and grenades. As the hours ticked by, government officials closely monitored the military planning and stressed that unless the proposal was extremely strong, the government would have no choice but to break its policy of refusing to give in to terrorist demands. There were now some 48 hours left before the terrorists would start their killing. So Israeli Defense Forces commanders presented a plan that the lives of scores of people would depend on. Flying in C-130 Hercules transport planes, a rescue team would fly from the Sinai Peninsula, which Israel controlled at the time, all the way down to Uganda. One of the planes would land directly at Entebbe Airport and then pretend to be Idi Amin and his entourage. They would exit the Hercules in a motorcade of vehicles that had been dressed up to look like those used by the dictator and his men. Jonathan Netanyahu, who is sometimes called Yoni, thought this ruse idea was the best of all the possible rescue plans that they had brainstormed. 
Uh, and that was the plan that uh, Yoni felt was straight from the get-go, was the only executable plan. Jonathan and the unit that he led didn't yet have approval from the Israeli government, but they prepared as if they did. They obtained a Mercedes limousine similar to the one Amin traveled in. But it was in poor condition, and it was the wrong color. They got a beat-up Mercedes uh, Friday morning. They had to fix it up. They had to repair the engine. They had to change the tires. A whole story about it. Okay. And they had to repaint it also. The Israelis also added a small Ugandan flag and cardboard license plates similar to those used on Ugandan military vehicles. To make it look like something presidential. The two Land Rovers that were to accompany the limousine also had to be retrofitted to carry a dozen soldiers apiece. But they worked on it. They worked on it all night and then during the day. They they had it ready. For Jonathan Netanyahu and his men, daring the rescue plan was the only choice. Compromise with evil was out of the question. But would the politicians make that same choice? The car that was somewhat central to their rescue mission was far from perfect. The plan itself was hastily formed and rehearsed. But Jonathan Netanyahu really believed in this rescue plan. And he worked hard to convince government officials to approve it. There's no question that he had a tremendous impact First of all, the defense minister, Shimon Peres, at that time the defense minister, actually called him in for a special interview on Friday, which is also unheard of, that a defense minister calls a lieutenant colonel for a one-on-one meeting. They did that because they knew all the stakes were on whether the unit can succeed or, or not. And so he called him and he wanted to ask him straight, uh, eye to eye, uh, will this mission succeed? Do you believe in this mission? Yoni Netanyahu did believe in it. And he was able to give Perez confidence that the plan was viable. He was able to convince Perez that by pretending to be Idi Amin, they could land at Entebbe and rescue the hostages with minimal casualties. Next, they had to convince the chief of staff, a man named Moda Gur. So later, on Friday, Jonathan and his team were rehearsing the exercise over and over again, and Mr. Gurr stopped by to observe them. There was a model exercise, and the chief of staff, Motagul, attended it. He had been all day sort of wishy-washy, was not very enthusiastic about the idea of this operation. But he saw the model exercise, late at night on Friday, and he asked, he asked the officers who were involved, he asked the commander of the mission, Dan Shamoran, he asked others, but especially he asked Yoni, he interviewed him. And Yoni also, once again, uh, stated and perhaps convinced him, it was the one who convinced him that this operation will succeed. In any case, at the end of this interview, Motagul announced to the officers there, uh, well, they were all gathered inside a tent, he said, well, I decided I'm going to recommend this mission. So he recommended it to uh, the prime minister. Most were still doubtful that the highest echelons of the government would give it the green light. But Jonathan Netanyahu continued to prepare as if it would be approved. And on the afternoon of Saturday, July 3rd, 
he and his team were in the air, flying toward Uganda. The government still hadn't approved the mission, and the commandos of the unit thought that their flight was merely a contingency. Everybody was sure, well, they're going to recall them back to Israel. There's no way the government will approve of this. I don't know of a single person in the unit that I interviewed, and I interviewed many of them many, many years ago, taped interviews. I don't recall a single person telling me honestly that he believed at that time that this operation would be approved. They say that Yoni believed it. Now, whether he really believed it or not, I can't say. But he certainly behaved to them as if it'll be approved. Jonathan Netanyahu was focused, determined, and confident. And as the team's C-130s refueled in the southern Sinai, he briefed his men, not just reviewing the plan and tactics the way an ordinary commander would do, but telling them what they were fighting for. Yoni convened his men and apparently gave them a very remarkable briefing and uh, motivated them and told them that uh, they'll succeed. There's no question they'll succeed, and told them how important this kind of mission is, that you can't give in to terrorism. And for the sake of Israel and the Jewish people, we have to succeed. And uh, he told them also, put aside everything, you know, it's 24 hours of very, very intense briefings and training and all that, Put everything aside. All you have to think about is the purpose of the mission. The purpose of the mission is to save the hostages. And everything you do has to be geared for that purpose. The commandos later said Jonathan Netanyahu's speech deeply impacted them. Many of the men say this really uh, changed their whole, uh, I would say, uh, perception of the operation and the how they went into it, 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 it gave them tremendous confidence they're going to succeed, which is very important for any operation. The lead pilot, Joshua Shani, told Ido Netanyahu that during that briefing, Jonathan seemed like a hero out of the Jewish people's ancient past. A few hours later, they were airborne once again flying over the Red Sea at low altitude to avoid Egyptian and Saudi Arabian radar. They reached Ethiopian airspace and bore south-southwest toward Uganda. Somewhere over Ethiopia, a message was delivered to the unit. Because Israel would not compromise with terrorists, and largely because of Jonathan's confidence-inspiring preparations, and his exemplary leadership. And because it was the right thing to do, the choice had become clear. Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin had approved the mission. Israel would stand up to this evil. A few hours later, During the first few minutes of July 4th, the four C-130s approached Entebbe Airport. The whole force consisted of four Hercules cargo planes. The first one carried Netanyahu's assault team of 34 men, and the Mercedes and the two Land Rovers also. 
And the second and the third planes carried the peripheral cover force of the unit and other, other soldiers. The fourth plane was the evacuation plane for the hostages, and it carried the uh, medical uh, unit. The first Hercules landed at Entebbe Airport alone, with the other three hanging back to avoid spoiling the ruse. They landed uh, in a, the airfield was still lit. Uh, the runway lights were still on, but the first plane landed by itself. And it landed in a lit field. Nothing happened. This was Yoni's team. They landed on the runway, about a mile from the old terminal building. And the ruse was working perfectly. The Ugandan soldiers didn't suspect anything. But they had to get to the terminal at lightning speed before their cover was blown. So they got inside the Mercedes and in the Land Rovers, and they drove them out of the plane. The cars quickly left the, uh, the plane, made their way with full headlights, you know, Idi Amin coming with a convoy. They drove toward the building where the hostages were being kept. About 200 yards before the old terminal, exactly where Yoni anticipated there would be Ugandan guards in the model exercise, Indeed, there were two guards there, two Ugandan guards. As is the custom of Ugandan soldiers, they uh, demanded that the force stop and uh, identify itself. The lead soldier raised a weapon, cocked it, shouted stop. The Israelis quickly neutralized these guards. And then they drove very, very quickly, with great speed, to the old terminal. Were they too late? Had the terrorists inside the building heard the gunfire from taking the guards out? This was a major concern, but Jonathan Netanyahu and the Israelis arrived, and they saw that they still had their most valuable advantage over the terrorists intact, the element of surprise. Everything was silent, completely silent. The commandos exited their vehicles, moving quickly toward the building, and scanning the area around them. Yoni ran forward, he told the other men to run forward as well, and they followed him. He gave instructions for them to enter the rooms, and that's what they did, very bravely. The men knew that each step and each door could bring Ugandan bullets, terrorist grenades, and bomb tripwires but they pushed ahead. There in the main hall of the old terminal were the 106 hostages, 94 mainly Israeli and Jewish passengers, and a handful of others, including the Air France crew. The first of the Israeli commandos through the door was named Amir Ofer. He lifted a megaphone to his mouth. Call out in Hebrew and also in English. Uh, we're in the Israeli army, we came to rescue you, lie down, everybody lie down. Terrorists and Ugandan soldiers fired on the Israelis, but the commandos killed all seven terrorists and dozens of soldiers. At least five commandos were wounded. Jonathan Netanyahu was also hit. Somewhere in the in front of the glass wall of the old terminal, 
Yoni was shot in the chest and uh, and uh, and basically could not go forward. On the runway, near the evacuation plane, two doctors and a senior medic attempted to resuscitate him, but to no avail. Around him, as the Israelis destroyed Ugandan Air Force fighter jets to prevent any pursuit, the lives that Jonathan Netanyahu had helped save streamed onto the evacuation plane, and they were carried to safety and to freedom. The operation had lost only three hostages and this extraordinary commander. The intelligence had been patchy, the planning had been precarious, and the lead time had been minimal, but they had succeeded. The operation was an incredible example of taking on and defeating evil. It was codenamed Operation Thunderbolt and is commonly known as Operation Entebbe, but it was later renamed Operation Jonathan, after the man who gave his life to confront evil. Amir Ofer, the first of Yoni's men to enter the old terminal during that raid, told the trumpet on July 30th that the operation was, quote, probably the most successful commando operation since World War II and one of the most successful commando operations ever. As the Entebbe rescue was taking place, world-famous educator Herbert W. Armstrong was in the air, flying from California to Italy. After landing in Rome, he learned of the operation, and he said the Israelis had, quote, showed the rest of the world an example of how to deal with this international menace of terrorism. Mr. Armstrong also said the rescuers had given the world an example of daring, courage, and efficient execution in a lightning military operation. His statements about it were published in the Plain Truth magazine of September 1976. Jonathan Netanyahu's legacy is of boundless courage, refusal to compromise with evil, and of willingness to lay down his life to avoid doing so. At Jonathan's funeral, Shimon Perez said, A bullet had torn the young heart of one of Israel's finest sons, one of its most courageous warriors, one of its most promising commanders, the magnificent Jonathan Netanyahu. We're coming to the end of The Sun Also Rises. We would like to thank Ryan Westerbahn, Amir Ofer, Josh Sloan, Philip Nice, and above all, Dr. Ido Netanyahu for his thorough research and writing about this historic mission and for sharing his time with us for this episode. I would highly recommend Ido Netanyahu's book, Yoni's Last Battle, to anyone who'd like to better understand the details of this inspiring history. 
We have a link to that book in our show notes on SoundCloud. And we also have links there to two of Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong's inspiring articles about Operation Jonathan. We'll leave you today with some words that Yoni Netanyahu wrote in a letter to his brother Benjamin as he was on his way into one of the many military conflicts that Yoni helped lead Israel to victory in. We're preparing for war, and it's hard to know what to expect. What I'm positive of is that there will be a next round and others after that. But I'd rather opt for living here, in continual battle, than for becoming part of the wandering Jewish people. Any compromise will simply hasten the end, and I don't intend to tell my grandchildren about the Jewish state in the 20th century as a mere brief and transient episode in thousands of years of wandering. I intend to hold on here with all my might. Thank you.